Presents a music and talk show where your host Darren Roebuck is joined by a variety of artists, scientists, entrepreneurs, and therapists as they share what's on their minds and give you new ideas and practices to help you get the most out of being you. Can you dig it? Be sure to visit deeporbitstudio.com for links, show notes, and more. Now sit back and take in the view while we blast off into Deep Orbit. Everybody, welcome to Deep Orbit Studio Presents, coming to you live through the generous folks there at Greenlight Radio. Otherwise, uh, you can catch the recorded versions of these on deeporbitstudio.com. I'm your host, Darren Roebuck, and with me today, I have a very special guest, an expert in the evolution of religious psychology. Uh, we have Yuval Laor with us today. And we're going to be talking about cults, uh, evolution of religious psychology, and all the stuff that you want to know, and even some more stuff that you never thought you knew or wanted to know, or whatever I mean by that. <laughs> and, uh, well, enough of the preamble. Let's just jump in. Yuval, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Good. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank so, you for having me. Now, as I understand it, you just received your PhD in the evolution of religious psychology. Uh, yes, I mean, that's what I wrote my, my dissertation about. Uh, the PhD is from uh, the culture school of the University of Tel Aviv. Yeah. I didn't know that. I've known yeah. you living here in Boulder, Colorado all this time. I, that, that, I that, do that, live here in Boulder, yes. That, that's a hefty commute. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I wrote it here. Yeah, went there once. Uh, very nice. So tell us, um, evolution of religious psychology, I, that conjures up a number of images in my mind. Um, what does it really mean? Well, the the uh, well, it, it could mean a number of things. Uh, specifically, a lot of people think that it would mean the evolution of religion uh, in general, which many times people refer to uh, uh, when they try to talk about how religion changes over time and how religion itself evolves, which is a fascinating topic. But my research was not about that. It was about how uh, uh, human evolution um in general and how human evolution resulted in uh, um creatures that can be religious or can uh, um specifically i focus on the capacity for fervor so humans can have fervor and humans can undergo religious conversion so how do you define fervor so well i have a a complex and, and long definition of fervor uh, it's it's uh, <laughs> uh, uh specifically the fervor is is central to to my dissertation, but I, I define it as a, a, a feedback between uh, uh, experiences and uh, uh, emotions and, and a doctrine and information and behavior. Uh, but uh, maybe we'll get to that a little later um, when, we, when I get into. <laughs> okay, good. You know, I think of fervor as being something like what the, uh, you know, football fanatics would, uh, st would express or Yes, I, and I think that it is, uh, uh, you, you could call that fervor. You also have a religious fervor, you have non-religious fervor, you have political fervor. Um, I think that uh, fervor is, is uh, uh, related uh, to the state of being in love, not to the emotion of love, but to the state uh, of being in love. So it, it uh, includes irrational behavior. It's more uh, likely in teenagers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So. <laughs> That's super interesting. So um, tell us a little bit more about uh, well, the deeper parts of this uh, evolution of religious psychology. So uh, um, uh, the, the, my advisor for this dissertation is an evolutionary theorist, uh, um, a very well-known one uh, within the academic circles. Uh, and uh, I rely on uh, her uh, version of evolution or her... Uh, a conception of evolution, which, or not just hers, but 
in general, it is uh, a view of evolution called uh, evo-devo, or evolutionary developmental psychology, or developmental biology, uh, to be exact. And uh, it is actually very different than what a lot of people think evolution is. People who have read books by uh, people like Richard Dawkins, who are um, uh, just... Uh, uh, not up to date on evolutionary theory. So, uh, uh, an evolutionary theory has been undergoing uh, quite a revolution. Uh, and uh, uh, an Evo Devo, uh, evolutionary developmental biology, is a, a view of evolution that, that uh, sees development, so how we turned from a zygote to a human, as a process that is closely and intimately related to. Uh, long-term evolution, so how we turned from a chimpanzee to a human, uh, and they seize those two processes as, as strongly interacting with each other and not separate the way someone like Richard Dawkins would would uh, envision them. So it, it, it can be sometimes called Lamarckian, but it's not, it's not silly uh, uh, um, Lamarckianism. It's, it's actually very complicated. And so is nuanced. that to imply then that the, a chimpanzee can form religion or develop its own fervor of whatever its category might be, you know, a banana fervor or something like that? <laughs> well, uh, I mean, certainly a chimpanzee can have, can have passion uh, for banana, but uh, he would not have fervor in the regular sense because uh, uh, in, in my uh, uh, view, religion is uh, dependent on symbolic la language. So for symbolic symbolic language uh, gives us a, a very robust notion of truth truth as a match between words and reality not you know uh, that meaning of the word truth and uh, um, there's a, a certainty that comes with fervor and religion and that certainty of the truth value of a certain doctrine is something uh, that requires symbolic language uh, and uh, as such it is absent in chimpanzees and they are not religious the way we are. <laughs> Super interesting. Well, Yuval, I know you also, uh, well, I know that you grew up uh, in Israel and then you've also lived here in Boulder and you've also lived in Germany and have traveled mm -hmm. extensively throughout the world. And uh, as always on this show, I ask uh, my guests to bring their favorite music. Um, and yours is by far the most eclectic mix that I've seen so far. And I love this stuff. And you guys are going to really get turned on to some really interesting stuff from all over the world here this evening. Um, but let's see here. This first one that we're uh, looking at here, it's called... Brassens. Uh, yeah. Can you give us a little intro as what this one it's, might be? It's, it's a song by Georges Brassens, who's a chansonnier uh, from France. Very nice. Well, check it out. Here's Brassens from, uh, from Deep Orbit Studio Presents. Ce n'était pas le radeau de la méduse, ce bateau, qu'on se le dise au fond des ports, dise au fond des ports. Il naviguait en père peinard sur la grand mare des canards et s'appelait les copains d'abord, les copains d'abord. Ces fluctuatnecmergitures, c'était pas de la littérature, n'en déplaise aux jeteurs de sorts, aux jeteurs de sorts. Son capitaine et ses matelots n'étaient pas des enfants de salauds, mais des amis franco de port, des copains d'abord. C'était pas des amis de luxe, des petits castors et pollux, des gens de Sodome et Gomorre, Sodome et Gomorre. C'était pas des amis choisis par Montaigne et la Boétie, sur le ventre ils se tapaient fort, les copains d'abord. 
C'était pas des anges non plus L'évangile il avait pas lu Mais il s'aimait toute voile dehors Toute voile dehors Jean-Pierre, Paul et compagnie C'était leur seule litanie Leur credo, leur confiteur Aux copains d'abord Au moindre coup de Trafalgar C'est l'amitié qui prenait le quart C'est elle qui leur montrait le nord Leur montrait le nord Et quand ils étaient en détresse Que leurs bras lançaient des SES On aurait dit des sémaphores Les copains d'abord au rendez-vous des bons copains y avait pas souvent de lapin Quand l'un d'entre eux manquait à bord C'est qu'il était mort Oui mais jamais, au grand jamais Son trou dans l'aune se refermait Cent ans après qu'aucun de sort Il manquait encore des bateaux, j'en ai pris beaucoup Mais le seul qui est tenu le coup Qui n'est jamais viré de bord Mais viré de bord Naviguait en père peinard Sur la grand mare des canards Et s'appelait les copains d'abord Les copains d'abord Seul qui est tenu le coup, qui n'est jamais viré de bord, mais viré de bord. Naviguait en père peinard sur la grand mare des canards et s'appelait les copains d'abord, les copains d'abord. You didn't tell me there'd be a kazoo solo. That was awesome. <laughs> you know, as much as I love that old, like, 1930s-style French, like, parlor jazz is what I'd call mm -hmm. it. I know that sort of cabaret style. <laughs> the kazoo solo, that sold me. That was awesome. I love that <laughs> stuff. So, um, so let's see here. Now, you say that, you know, along with religious psychology, uh, evolution of religious psychology, that cults is a big part of this. Uh, yes. Well, uh, before I go into cults, I'll just uh, uh, plug my my uh, uh, thesis advisor's book, uh, a book she wrote with Professor Marion Lamb called Evolution in Four Dimensions by Eva Yablonka and uh, Marion Lamb. So look that up if you want to. What was the name of that again? Evolution in Four Dimensions by Eva Yablonka or Yablonka and Marion Lamb. Where can people find that? Um, wherever books are sold. <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you always wanted to say that on the radio? <laughs> Wherever books are sold. Yes, but um, cool. But That's something to de definitely check out. So cults and why cults and why not just religion as covering that whole that whole gamut? Yes. Well, uh, uh, um, well, first of all, cults are endlessly fascinating, and and in a way, uh, I've been following cults, specifically uh, Scientology and, and a few others, even before uh, I started my research. So, um, But uh, in general, evolutionary uh, uh, thinking is uh, very interested in, in the most extreme cases of what it is, uh, um, it, it, what is uh, 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 being explained. So... Uh, if we talk about the evolution of language, we might be extremely interested in, in, in uh, certain chimpanzees and gorillas that are extremely, uh, 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 that are geniuses at speaking and can speak very, very impressively. And we're interested in them not because this is what uh, these primates do in nature, but because we're interested to see how far can they go um, and, uh, you know, the evolution of our vision is very interested in optical illusion, uh, illusions. And so looking at the normal, uh, uh, case or, you know, the, the 
the way people are religious out there is, of course, extremely important and very interesting. But um, and and the psychology of religion in general is is interested in that primarily. But when you're looking at things from an evolutionary evolutionary point of view, you're also uh, need to be very, very aware of the most extreme cases uh, and how far it can go. And uh, in general, it, it's, it, uh, it doesn't need to be something that is common or that uh, can be re- reproduced. You know, the, uh, if we only find one talking dog, we would rethink the evolution of all dogs and of, of language. We, it doesn't need to uh, be repeated, you know. Uh, so anecdotes, normally in science, anecdotes are not uh, uh, as interesting as, as uh, um, more scientific reproducible evidence but for evolutionary thinking uh certain anecdotes can be can be extremely illuminating so cults can be thought of as uh, an extreme case of of religion or at least of fervor uh and uh in addition cults uh are much more likely to recruit people and induce a religious conversion in people as opposed to have people who are born into uh, the the tradition and uh, that allows us to really see uh, um, uh, get a close look at the conversion uh, events and how they occur and how they're induced and uh, uh, I think we'll talk about them a little later about the conversions but uh, well, now a question that pops into my mind is you know you you mentioned the recruitment and stuff how do people fall for a cult I mean is it uh, something that's in the subject or is it something that anybody can fall for or, uh, you know, what, what actually happens there? Well, the, the, um, certainly, uh, there are certain people who are more likely, who are more in danger of falling into cults. And those in general would be people who are teenagers or young adults, uh, people who have recently, uh, uh, underwent certain trauma or, uh, um, moved or, or undergone a, a, a major life change. Um, but the, the idea that one uh, cannot, uh, uh, will, uh, is not at risk of joining cults. You know, the, the idea that uh, cults only, uh, uh, only gullible people or, or, or stupid people join cults, which is a completely wrong understanding of what's going on, is actually increases your likelihood of joining a cult. So the people who think that they're, uh, there's no way that they can be, join a cult, they're the ones that will say, yeah, yeah, I'll go to the Moonies, you know, intensive weekend uh, in the compound. Of it. Um, and as such, and as I'll describe soon, the, the, um, the, they, they can, uh, it can happen. It can happen to people and it can be absolutely horrific. I mean, people, who are uh, uh, healthy and and normative have joined uh, really horrific uh, groups uh, and uh, you know the 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 people's temple the the the, the cult the the semi Christian cult that committed suicide with uh, drinking the the Kool Aid and 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 the jungles of Guyana um, was uh, 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 something that can in a way happen to to healthy, regular, intelligent uh, uh, people. So if it doesn't jump us too far ahead, what can people do to um, maybe pass on to their kids <laughs> or to tell their friends or just to protect themselves from um, being susceptible to being abducted or influenced by a cult? Uh, so the... the First of all, we, we live in an era where people are able to look up um, what happened to them or, 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 or look up a group that they, that they visited and, uh, on the Internet, and then they can read uh, uh, what people have to say. And we got to the point where for every, almost every uh, uh, active cult, there is uh, an active ex-member community. So... Um, for example, Scientology has a very uh, uh, big and thriving uh, ex ex Scientologist community, and they um, and so uh, if you uh, experience a, a situation or or a group that that seems 
suspicious or seems too good to be true or seems um, then then uh, uh, looking it up and uh, uh, reading critical accounts of it can can really help people steer away uh, but also uh, just in general uh, an understanding of how cults recruit and how cults work um, is is very very helpful in in avoiding uh, becoming a victim of, of a cult and are there any uh, recruitment techniques that are sort of common throughout different cults yes so um, l- l- let me let me uh, uh, <clears throat> talk uh, about about uh, uh, how this happens and <clears throat> let, me, let me start with with uh, the, the, uh, talking about miracles and about about uh, uh, the <laughs> How how miracles can uh, um, persuade people to believe in things which are, in a sense, not directly related to the miracle. Or I mean, these are of course perceived miracles. These are not real miracles. But um, you, you see uh, that when people observe something that is, uh, uh, ex- you know, uh, that they would consider a miracle, they can get into a mindset, they can get into a, a, a kind of a, a, a mystical experience of sorts and, and come out of it thinking that the miracle proved a set of things that in fact are unrelated to the miracle. So um, we could have a, a, a bowl of sugar here uh, and, it, and we can drop it on the floor and then the sugar on the floor, it would spell the word truth, you know, so that would, you know, we can look at that, be completely overwhelmed, and uh, you know all sorts of, of physiological things are going to happen to us. And yet, from the same uh, uh, miracle, you can have one observer uh, uh, see that as a proof that Islam is correct, and another observer see the same miracle and be certain that Catholicism was just proved to them. Uh, you can have a person that is completely unaffected by it. So. Um, in in a way, you could you could uh, uh, say that you know Jesus walking on the water uh, is a miracle, but it's not really related to Christianity. It you know people cannot see uh, that as a miracle and and logically conclude anything that is unrelated to the buoyancy of Jesus. But uh, um, uh, and yet the the, the way the way uh, um, we psychologically react to miracles is to um, use them as a proof of what I call a, a proto-faith. So you could have uh, a number of, of, you know, atheists that all believe the same set of beliefs, but one of them, if they see the miracle, they become a Hindu. And the other one, if they see a miracle, they will become, you know, uh, a Buddhist. So, um, it's the 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 proto faith is um, is sort of what you will convert to if you see something that is uh, sufficiently uh, uh, evokes sufficient emotions. Um, and now it's it's not just miracles that can create these these states. It could be trauma. Um, it could be uh, uh, just uh, very very strong emotional experiences, uh, which of course are much more likely in teenagers. Um, more likely to happen at the early hours in the morning. Uh, there's certain things that are uh, uh, typical. Is that, is that somehow connected to your dream state? Uh, well, it's it's. Uh, I mean, the, the the early hours of the morning. It's it's uh, uh, related to to brain functioning. It's it's uh, in a roundabout way. It is related to to dream states, but it's it's. Um, it's it's more related to to uh, emotions and to uh, uh, you know parts that happen in certain regions of the brain. But I don't want to talk about the neurological aspect of this. I can talk about that on a I, different. I actually uh, want to get back <laughs> more into the buoyancy of Jesus. <laughs> I want to know a measurement on that one. Yes, but. Uh, um, uh, you know, you, you could see that. Uh, you know, if, if we'll, if if I'll, I'll talk to this again, we, you you could see how you can imagine people seeing Moses parting the Red Sea, and of course, I'm not claiming that that this historically happened, but you can imagine people viewing the Red Sea being parted and coming to you know undergoing to a conclusion that proves to them that now that I've seen 
the Red Sea parted. Now I cannot deny that I really do need to cut my penis. (laughs) 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 I guess circumcision is the only way. Now, you know, how can you argue with that, right? (laughs) Um, You know... I'd, I'd probably have to see the Red Sea part before I'd get involved with that. Yes. But, uh, but then again, that could be a powerful image. And so the, uh, um, if, if we uh, observe the way cult recruitment works, um, and first of all, many times they lie to you before, before you show up to the, uh, uh, to, to the weekend or the retreat or whatever it might be. Um, but the the first thing that cults do is to establish a proto-faith and uh, not a faith. So they just set it up in a way that you don't have to believe anything that the cult uh, believes in, but you need to get yourself into a state where it, well, if you see a miracle now, then you will not go to your regular proto-faith and become, you know, maybe whatever you, know, you're, you were as a kid or whatever your parents were, but you will actually see that as a proof that the cult is correct. And so um, initially they would uh, uh, um, work on familiarizing you with, with the, the, the face so that you know what to convert to. Now, that is, you don't need, uh, it's not necessary for you, for you to know too much. I mean, after all, we know that people can believe with all their heart and uh, things that they don't actually know what they are. I mean, you can be some a, a very devout Christian without having read the Bible, right? Um, so you can outsource information. You can believe that whatever it is that's in the book, you know, I'll believe that, uh, but believe it very, very strongly. Uh, and so the, you just need to be familiar enough that when you undergo this kind of a psychological event, you would uh, uh, know what uh, uh, what it proves, right? Because as I said many times, the miracle itself is not unrelated to the, the conclusion that people draw from observing the miracle. Um, and another thing that, that cults do as part of their uh, manipulation um, is, is to... Uh, um, so, for example, with, with, with the Moonies, you, you might show up to the weekend retreat somewhere in the countryside. They change your diet. They change, you know, they might give you a different name for the, for the group, which is also uh, important. And sort of um, dehumanizing you or taking well, away your sense of self. Yeah, it's, it's, it's setting up a different, uh, uh, a, a different identity in a way. Um, and and I, I can talk about uh, a little bit about that later. But you might think that you are one, you know, that there's 20 new recruits that are not parts of the group and 20 cult members, that, that that's the composition. That's what you think is going on. But in fact, you might be one of two or maybe the only one that's not a cult member. And all the other people who are with you as, as outsiders being interested in the group are actually cult members who are acting. Um, as if they were not cult members. So they're shills. Yes. And so um, they, they can be used in many ways. For example, some, some groups gather information about the, the, the recruit as uh, uh, their friends and then give that information to the cult leader, which then magically knows things about you that, that they, they have no way of knowing and that proves that, you know, whatever. Um, and many times they keep you up at night. So you think that you came to the retreat and, and you, you got three days and two nights. And, and during the two nights, you think, you know, they tell you that they're going to give you eight hours of sleep. But you go to the room and everybody in the room, which are actually other cult members, keeps you up. And you don't get any sleep or you get half an hour of sleep. And uh, uh, they all talk to each other and to you about how they're impressed and all of this. And, and so you, the, the manipulation of depriving you of sleep, which makes later uh, uh, undergoing strong uh, uh, um, religious-like experiences or mystical-like experiences much more likely uh, when you're sleep-deprived, when you're um, just a- outside of an equilibrium wow. state. This is so cool. So we'll get back more into cults and cult behavior with Yuval Laor uh, here in just a minute, as well as uh, a real measurement on the buoyancy of Jesus. Uh, and we're going to jump into the, uh, I think it's got a little Turkish pop music here. 
No, this is this is a, an Israeli song about uh, Turkish coffee. Israeli song about Turkish coffee. All right. Well, you are listening to Deep Orbit Studio presents. like Israeli surf music that that's just my totally <laughs> new favorite thing to listen to so that was, <laughs> that was Arik it. Einstein yeah Arik I, with an A for anyone that wants to check it out uh and that was from uh the, 1970s yeah Israeli mid, mid, mid 70s yes. so their mid 70s was like our mid 60s here something like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how long it takes to get halfway around the world so um We've established, well, so within the cults here, mm -hmm. we, um, you're saying that a miracle is an important aspect of this. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the, coaxing the, the, someone the, well, miracle is, is one of the likely triggers of an extreme emotional experience. Uh, but uh, other triggers can be. I mean, and, and of course, a miracle is, is something that is interpreted by the viewer as a miracle, right? The miracle... Uh, um, what is sufficiently out of the ordinary is 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 based on what you think is normal, 
right? So there are certain things that would seem to some to be miraculous and to others might seem uh, normal. Well, how would a cult establish a miracle? Okay, so uh, uh, so after after a, a cult establishes a proto faith, which is actually not difficult to do because it's it doesn't require you to believe anything. It just requires you to admit that okay, if I see something that that is uh, uh, um, sufficiently uh, um, uh, in, inducing a mystical experience, is that this is what I will conclude from that. But uh, and so. After they established the proto faith, many cults would would uh, uh, you know uh, tell people that now we're going to be uh, meditating for eight hours, you know, or stare at a white wall for for a, a long time, or uh, Scientologists would stare into each other's eyes without uh, moving um, at all for hours on end. Um, Scientologists, uh, in general, the the they do a, a number of things called training routines, which Includes uh, screaming at ashtrays at the top of your lung and, and screaming at each other, uh, uh, and all sorts of, of uh, uh, strange, strange things. But including a lot of sensory deprivation and sitting motionless. And those. Oh, that sounds a lot like a relationship I was in once. <laughs> but getting back to cults. <laughs> yeah. um, so the the. After you you sit motionless uh, with your eyes open, uh, as a Scientologist would for uh, a number of hours, or uh, someone who's being recruited into Scientology, uh, you are very likely to undergo uh, hallucinations and to undergo extreme experiences. And this is for neurological reasons that I won't get into, but... Um, uh, in general, here I have a, a quote here uh, that that is uh, uh, from from a forum, a Scientology forum, um, and it's by someone who's anonymous. He's got a, a an alias here called uh, Funky Donnie, and uh, he writes uh, to conceal his mental model into hard belief. Hubbard, which is the the founder of Scientology, Elron, primes you to expect a feeling of release after the bad incident has been erased. Now, this uh, uh, is what they imagine uh, is, is occurring in, in, in one of those sessions. Um, oddly enough, you may well feel fantastic after a two-hour sessions of repetitive badgering. At some point in the repetitive tedium of a Dianetic session, um, which is, again, a certain kind of uh, 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 ritual uh, or behavior done by Scientologists, you'll more than likely get a tangible sense of euphoria, which is enough to prove that the method works. Some experience this as a full-on mental blowout. Their hair stands on end, they go bright red, and they can feel euphoric for up to two days. I felt this incredible euphoria only early on in Scientology, and I could surely pinpoint that moment as the point of no return for me. It is the event horizon of the cult. This was proof, and magnetic proof at that. So uh, uh, this, this, this account, um, which is not untypical, even though there are other ways to, to join uh, uh, groups, both religions and cults, there are slow conversions. But this describes the, the fast conversion, which, which uh, um, I'm particularly interested in. And um, so the, the, at, at first, the, the cult would just get you into the settings you know, you know many times by lying to people um after that it would manipulate you uh i mean certain cults you know they're all somewhat different but they manipulate you in ways that would make it more likely for you to undergo this kind of a very strong emotional uh, mystical like experience with your hair standing on end and turning bright red etc um and they will establish a proto-faith, uh, uh, something for you to uh, uh, interpret the experience through and use the experience as a proof of the truth value of that, uh, 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 th that set of ideas and, uh, um, and attitudes and motivations. So tell us a little bit more about what the conversion experience is like for someone who is... Uh, falling into the trap of of the cult members. So the uh, um, I mean I, I could uh, uh, well first of all it is it it's it's varied. So there there's an, a number of 
of strong, but it's just a very, very strong emotional experience. But I think that if, if I'll talk about the, the evolutionary uh, uh, rela relation uh, uh, or, or my evolutionary analysis of, of all this psychological events, uh, uh, I think that it will become uh, more clear. But in general, I would say that the, the event of a religious conversion of this kind of uh, um, event that can you know, uh, affect you for decades after that event. I think that it is closely uh, related to the psychological event of uh, becoming a parent or falling in love at first sight. And so when a person becomes a parent, um, normally uh, uh, also as a young adult or, or a teenager, um, the experience can be extremely emotional, can be very, very, you know, salient and memorable um and uh it allows a person to fundamentally change your life so uh just like religious conversion can make you allow you to change your life having a baby uh is a kind of experience that creates a very very strong commitment and this is uh, an irrational commitment it's not based on on uh uh, uh, cost benefit considerations, you know, it's, it's, you're completely all in, uh, into the, the commitment and, uh, that event allows fundamental changes in a person's life, including, uh, uh, you know, to, to, uh, quit addictions, uh, and to just, uh, uh, and habits and, uh, uh, break away, uh, uh, other relationships they might have. Um, and, that event, which which is from an evolutionary point of view, we, we, we see in many animals, right? Becoming a parent, becoming attached. Um, I think that that event in uh, a complex relationship to, to uh, uh, religiosity and to religious emotions, uh, etc., um, is uh, uh, closely related to the conversion experience. And so the, uh, if, if any of the listeners has become a parent, uh, uh, they can, uh, they, they felt something that is somehow a cousin of those kind of religious conversion. Super interesting. Well, you know what? Let's see here. Let's jump into a little bit more music. You actually, you brought something that's one of my favorite artists, David Byrne, but he's doing a kind of an old standard. Yes, a Cole Porter song. An old Cole Porter song. Uh, in a really unique way. I love this version. So, um, well, you all can guess what song it is, but you don't have to guess where you are. This is Deep Orbit Studio Presents, and here is David Byrne. In the evening breeze Listen to the murmur of the 
back to Deep Orbit Studio Presents, uh, sitting here with Yuval Laor and uh, talking about cult behavior and uh, evolution of religious psychology, religious fervor, etc. So we've touched on a number of interesting topics, especially in the last segment. And so uh, I've got a bunch of questions. How did all of this evolve what separates love from fervor and uh, or religious behavior? Uh, you know, you mentioned like um, the the feeling of intense commitment and love that a parent feels, but parenthood, of course, isn't a cult. Although mm-hmm. people might argue that the kid may 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 resemble a uh, a cult leader in many ways, you know, being extremely selfish <laughs> and self serving, despotic, etc. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, give us a little bit more insight of what what some of the dividing lines might be. Um, so uh, 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 l- let me let me get to 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 uh, 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 some of the the heart of my of my uh, dissertation and my and my thesis. Um, about this relationship between between uh, love, uh, so um, love related things and religious uh, or fervor related things, and so uh, uh, I argue um, that religion is is made possible because we have um, symbolic language giving us a certain meaning of a certain. Uh, uh, view and relationship to truth, uh, truth in the sense of uh, a match between words and reality kind of truth, um, or veridicality, as it is called. And um, that with the infrastructure that is provided by uh, things like love, uh, being in love, falling in love, and and family, which are all related, uh, when symbolic language interacted with with, uh, uh, all this, this... kind of uh, uh, family relationships and, and emotions, um, we, we got religious behavior. So the parallels would be between uh, the, the emotions uh, around love, right, which is a, a whole family and, and, and set of emotions, can correspond to emotions uh, surrounding awe, A-W-E, mm-hmm. that strange emotion. Um, and uh, the the parallel of the state of of having fervor can be thought of as uh, uh, corresponding in a way being a cousin of the state of being in love, one of those intense you know uh, uh, irrational states of being in love. Uh, the event of the religious conversion, the event that establishes this kind of a relationship, can be thought of as as parallel to the event of falling in love or or becoming a parent. Um, this would be the fast conversion and the fast falling in love. They both have a slow version. Um, and in general, the, the big social uh, and personal uh, and, and uh, construct of religion corresponds to the big construct of a family, which, of course, is extremely varied. And so the same way that love is neither necessary nor sufficient for family and we have families without love and we have love without family uh the same way you can uh, uh, think of religion uh, the relationship between religion and fervor where you can have religion without fervor you can have fervor without religion but uh in both cases it seems that they're necessary for the establishment of either a family or a religion but the the, the main difference uh and you ask about the difference is that when the commitment, uh, uh, so when someone become a parent, they're committed to a child, but when someone undergoes a conversions, a conversion, they become committed to also to a doctrine. And so that includes uh, a truth value. So you're not only uh, uh, 
committed uh, in a strong irrational commitment to the group, but you uh, also believe in uh, or feel a certainty regarding the doctrines of that group. So um, let's jump into a little bit of a PSA here. What, mm-hmm. what, let's give uh, our listeners something they can take away from this and practice in their lives. Now, if you were to come across someone who is in a cult or someone who has been in a cult, um, how would we relate to them and how should we treat those people? So uh, l- let me start with, with how we should think about people who have been in cults, because uh, the, the problem of, of, of interacting with cult members is, is, is uh, deeper. Um, but the way I think of uh, uh, someone who has been in a cult, uh, I mean, normally society in, in many cases sees them as gullibles, gullible people, or, or uh, stupid people, uh, which is, of course, completely, I think, uh, uh, wrong. But um, I think we should think of them as, as uh, you know, first of all, as someone that just stepped, stepped in dog shit, you know. It's not something, you know, you spent five years, you know, as part of the Moonies, you know, it can happen to you. It's, it's, you're, not, you're not something, it's not something that I think people should be accountable for um, in, in a certain way, just that they were manipulated and they were unlucky that the cult found them, you know. It's not that they found the cult. Um, but the way we should think of the, those people who, who were in cults, um, I think uh, um, uh, a good way to think of them as being similar to parents uh, of uh, uh, an abusive kid or abusive, you know, special needs kid uh, that uh, is very... Um, because the, the and and the idea the the idea of the connection between religion and family, of course, is is very old. I mean, Freud would tell us that um, in uh, religion, the the uh, the member uh, sees the cult leader as a father figure, and I think that the relationship between the cult leader and the cult, uh, not necessarily the cult leader, but the cult member to the cult to the group is more similar to the relationship between a parent and a child than a child and a parent. And so the, the selfless giving uh, that uh, a cult member gives to their cult is not similar to the, to, to the obedience of a child to his parent, but to the selfless, uh, endless uh, uh, um, uh, uh, giving and, and effort that parents put into their children. Um, and, uh, the, the, we, we see, you know, if we're told that a parent finds out that their, their kid, um, uh, is a criminal, you know, or that their kid, um, you know, is a horrible person, we, we completely understand if they, A, don't believe it, uh, they don't want to hear anything about it. And they would lie, and uh, uh, on the behalf of the of their kid. And so, if a parent is told that their kid is, is is a murderer, and that parent does not believe it, and hides their kids and help their kids escape, we uh, as a society we understand that parent, right? You know, we we even see it as a, as a you know the power of love that that parental love was so strong. But we certainly don't. Uh, um, we don't fault them, um, but if we think of the relationship of a cult member to a cult uh, as a similar kind of relationship, and of course there there there, there are uh, important differences, but uh, we do see that sometimes families are strong uh, can can pull people out of cults, and we know that cults in in some cases break up families, so it's unclear you know, which, which group, which kind of uh, relationship is going to win out. But when we see cult members lying, uh, and refusing to believe that their cult is, 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 um, mistreating people or that, uh, is criminal. And when we see people lie on behalf of their cult or, or, or give all their money to the cult, we don't treat them as a parent, uh, would treat a, a child, which is very understandable, but many people will seize the, see them just as gullible 
you know, idiots that, uh, uh, you know, how can they believe that? But um, if we understand the, the conversion of joining a cult, the, the, the event to be uh, as powerful an event as the event of becoming a parent, where it can literally change your life drastically for, for decades after it happened, um, I think that, that it's, uh, we can understand the behavior of cult members and, and, and see how, um, how we should, we should of course not, not support it. We should not, uh, but we should understand it as, as completely human, um, and normal. And, uh, in a way, the same way that the parent of an, uh, uh, an abusive kid or, or, uh, 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 and uh, a kid that requires endless giving um, is is uh, is laudable. You know, it's we we appreciate those people. So. Well, Yuval, this has been absolutely fascinating, and I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, where can people find out more information about this? Well, there's many many uh, books that are better and worse about the subject. The subject is very long and, and extensive. Uh, people can uh, uh, read my dissertation, which I'm currently working on transforming into a book uh, titled The Religious Ape, uh, with a provocative title. Yeah. With the subtitle Love, Fervor, and the Evolution of Religion. That's also the title of the dissertation. So I think we'll put a link uh, to that uh, PDF file on the um, on the website here. We'll put it up, yeah, on uh, deeporbitstudio.com. We'll have that link up when we have the shows. And of course, uh, if you want to hear past shows, uh, I post those on deeporbitstudio.com as well. And that, of course, is the link to all the DJR family of offerings, whether it's graphic design or voiceover or kids' books, etc. You can go there and find everything you've ever imagined or at least just the stuff I offer. But either way, uh, you can find out more about what Yuval's been studying for the past number of years uh, on this truly fascinating subject. And Yuval, you'll, we'll certainly have you back on again to get a little more in-depth into cult behavior and religious fervor and the evolution of religious psychology. Sure. Thanks for having me, and I'll be glad to come back. Well, you're very welcome. And so we're going to sign off here with uh, a song by Jeannette called Porque... Porque de vas? What's this song about? This is a Spanish song from the 70s as well. A Spanish song? All right. Well, thank you very much for listening, everybody, and enjoy this. We'll see you next week. Yo no lloré